and welcome to Middle East Matters on France 24. I'm Nadia Massey. Here's what's coming up this week in the show. As football superstars head to Saudi Arabia and the kingdom announces a bombshell golf merger, we ask what role does sports play in soft power? And is it sports washing? Also coming up, a wave of crime within Israel's Palestinian minority. Over 100 people killed this year, with community members saying they suffer from institutional discrimination and neglect by police. And Yemen's beekeepers feel the sting as the conflict impacts their hives and their ability to export their precious honey. But first, our question on the show this week, what role does sports play in soft power in the Middle East? It is a question we're asking after the bombshell announcement that the PGA Tour is to merge with arch rival Live Golf owned by Saudi Arabia. And it's not just golf. The kingdom also has its eye on global football stars and perhaps even the NBA. So what is Riyadh's strategy and should we see it as sports washing? Well, let's talk now to Yasmin Farouk. She's a non-resident scholar at Carnegie's Middle East programme. Thanks very much for talking to us today on France 24. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, uh, when the news broke of that golf merger, it appeared to take many people, even within the industry, by surprise. What was your reaction when you first heard about it? Well, it was definitely a surprise because the rivalry between the two, and I would even say the legal rivalry between the two, was no secret since the uh, LIV or LIV, whatever you want to call it, uh, golf tour started. So it was uh, indeed a surprise for many of us following the sports news um, and other news related to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Indeed, and it's not just golf then, as I said, the same deal that that golf deal was announced, it was reported the, that the French footballer Karim Benzema was heading to Riyadh. The kingdom already invests heavily in Formula One, in racing, in boxing. There's even speculation that American legacy sports organisations like the NFL or the NBA might be next. So sort of geopolitically, what do you think Saudi Arabia's strategy is here? Well, uh, the strategy has many faults. One of it is also making the sports sector actually a lucrative sector sector that can uh, get revenue for uh, the kingdom. It's not just about you know um, buying those stars just for visibility. It is definitely for visibility. It helps with the kingdom's image abroad. But also sports is one sector, one economic sector in that sense that the kingdom is trying to develop. It's also part of its strategy to change the Saudi society. It really has many faults, not just facing the outside world, but also internally. It comes with a series of measures in other sectors, but also within the sports sector, like, you know, opening sports to women, opening stadiums to women. Uh, it is also related to some health uh, elements, such as, you know, reducing obesity, increasing, you know, exercise within Saudi society. So it comes within, you know, um, a larger policy within the kingdom that is directed as much as to the outside that it is to the inside of the kingdom. And Yasmin, what do you make of this argument that what Riyadh is trying to do internationally is sports wash, as it's known, its human rights record. That means sort of investing in sports to try and improve its image on the world stage. Would you agree with that? 
sports helps with the kingdom's image. That's um, that's a fact. However, I do believe that uh, the the money, the amounts of money that are being spent, in addition to, as I said, other elements of this policy, makes it really go beyond a sports washing. As I um, as I indicated, it is targeted as a sector to generate revenue for the kingdom within uh, its larger strategy of Vision 2030 of having you know a diversified economy. It is linked to changing the society from the inside. So it helps with changing the image of the kingdom abroad from a conservative kingdom, from a rentier state that only depends on oil, that is only known for oil and Islam, to a sports hub. Uh, and in that, the kingdom is actually competing and um, is doing is following the same strategy as its neighbors, especially Qatar that has hosted, for example, recently the World Cup and other countries in the Gulf. Indeed, I was going to ask you about the World Cup because Saudi Arabia has not officially bid for the 2030 World Cup for the moment, but insiders say it's probably only a matter of time until it does. And is that, do you think, about that rivalry with Qatar that, as you say, did host the last World Cup? In general, all Gulf countries are in competition. And given, you know, this similar structure of the countries and of uh, the economies, of course, with differences, huge differences in size, especially if you compare Qatar to Saudi Arabia. Yes, they are, of course, competing. And all of them have sports as uh, most all of them, not all of them, but uh, have sports as a sector to develop, as a sector to, as I said, uh, to draw uh, revenue from. And as you said in your introduction, it is not just about, you know, football. Football is the most probably uh, popular uh, in that region uh, when it comes to sports. But as you said in your introduction, it is really about golf. It is about boxing. It is about so many things uh, that are part of this uh, Vision 2030 strategy. Yasmin Farouk from the Carnegie Middle East program. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. Now, another news, Saudi Arabia has signed a $5.6 billion deal with a Chinese electric car maker, one of several major investments inked at a Sino-Arab conference in Riyadh this week. In total, over $10 billion of investment deals were signed, spanning technology, real estate and tourism. Now, it comes amid growing commercial and diplomatic ties between Beijing and the Gulf, including the landmark resumption of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia earlier this year, which was brokered by the Chinese government. Now, in other news, thousands of Palestinian citizens of Israel have taken part in protests recently amid a wave of crime within the minority group. In the latest attack, five people, including a 15-year-old, were shot dead near Nazareth last week. Experts say the spike in crime is linked to drugs and arm trafficking, as well as prostitution. And many within Israel's Palestinian community say the problem is made worse by discrimination and government neglect. Shirley Sitbon has the story. Hundreds of people pay their final respects for two murder victims. For these two men, everything ended here, at a car wash in Yaffa Anasaria, near Nazareth. They, as well as the three other victims of the shooting attack, were Israeli Arabs or Palestinian Israelis. Their assailants have yet to be arrested. For police, the shooting is part of a feud between two families implicated in organized crime. 
Dozens of police personnel backed by a helicopter took part in search operations hoping to catch the perpetrators as soon as possible and refer them to justice. Organized crime has gained power and influence in recent years in Israel's Arab communities. Officially, 102 people have been murdered since the beginning of the year, compared with 106 for all of last year. Criticized for his government's lack of action, Benjamin Netanyahu said interior security forces, the Shin Bet, should be integrated into the fight against gangs. We will target the head of the snake of these criminal organizations. I will convene a special government meeting with our legal advisors, so we plan out how to integrate the Shin Bet. Arab Israelis are the descendants of Palestinians who remained in the country after Israel's creation in 1948. Many of them say authorities are letting crime grow deliberately by not fighting criminal organizations properly. Accused of neglecting the problem, the far-right national security minister Itamar Benvir says the problem was already there when he took office. Well, we end the program this week in Yemen, a country producing some of the most sought-after honey in the world. But eight years of war has had a huge impact on the country's beekeepers who are struggling to find safe areas for their hives, as Monty Francis now reports. This sound is the buzz of business and music to the ears of beekeeper Abdul-Jabbar Al-Ghuli. May peace be upon you. These are the Yemeni bees, producers of the world's finest honey. Honey is a source of pride for many in Yemen and for good reason. The high quality means that Al Ghuli can sell one jar directly to consumers abroad for the equivalent of 62 euros. Our honey does not crystallize even after a period of up to seven years. It preserves its characteristics of color, taste, aroma and density. That's because of the purity of the floral source as bees feed solely on the sidra trees. But eight years of war have had their sting. The ongoing violence has made it hard for Al Ghuli and other beekeepers to find secure places for their hives. And shipping their product out of the country is both difficult and expensive. Exporting our honey has been extremely hard, as there are no longer shipments through airports or through maritime shipping companies. All of this affected exports compared to the past, when we used to ship by air cargo to any country anywhere in the world. Figures show that Yemen produced about 1,500 tons of honey in 2022, down considerably from 5,000 tons in 2012 before the war began. Despite the challenges to his industry, Al Ghuli is taken to social media to generate a buzz, and it's helping. Even in the midst of war, Yemen's honey provides a living for some 100,000 beekeepers across the country. And that report from Yemen brings us to the end of Middle East Matters this week. Thanks for watching and do stay tuned. The Warsaw Ghetto 1943.
one of the dark chapters of the Jewish genocide. The 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is very important to me, as it's important to the whole world. For some, it is impossible to forget. People often say to me, move on, move on, but I can't. There's no fresh start. But in Poland, memory of the event seems to be fading. Somehow it's a silent acceptance of growing hate. The Warsaw Ghetto, 80 years later, revisited on France 24 and France24.com. <laughs>